0: Step out in faith, and where there's a risk factor, you're not going to see much. You know, for Simon Peter sitting in the boat with the other 11, everybody talks about how he sank. But I like to say, hey, that man walked on water for a while. And notice, one out of 12 was willing to take the risk to step out on the Word of God. But he, for the rest of his life, could say, hey, I walked on water. (laughs) What about you, James? What about you, John? No, they stayed in the boat, played it safe. So today we're going to talk about the risk of obedience. And I'm going to put some passages up here. If you don't have your Bible with you, if you do, it's Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Luke 5, 1 through 4. And they say a, a preacher loves the sound of the rustling of Bible pages. But in my day, it also has to include clicking on an iPhone. I don't care how you access it as long as you're looking at the Word. Uh, Luke 5, the first four verses. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the Word of God. That's why they went to Jesus. They wanted to hear the Word. That he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and they were washing their nets and Then he got into one of the boats, and it happened to be Simon Peter's, but not by mistake. There's no mistakes with Jesus. And asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Wouldn't that have been a scene? Beautiful. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, "Now I want you to read this with me because this is where we're going this year. Ready? Launch out into the deep. And let down your nets for a catch. I'm going to stop right there. Father, thank you that faith always challenges us and stretches us and calls us to go further, go deeper, go higher, go go wider than we've known. Lord, I believe the call of God is coming to your church, to to the people of God who are listening to your spirit, that we must be bold in our faith. We must be aggressive in our faith. We must allow our faith to be stretched and to take the risk that faith requires. Now breathe a prayer, church, with me and just say, Lord, today speak to me and stretch my faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell your neighbor, you just prayed a dangerous prayer. All right. Well, I've I've called this series risk because the walk of faith really always does carry a risk factor. If you'll just stop and think about it, anytime you've exercised your faith, there there was a risk factor. Now, I, I like to be sure we understand one another when I when I say risk. I don't mean irresponsible risk. I don't mean foolish risk. I don't mean presumptuous risk. I'll just go ahead and say it. I don't mean stupid risk, okay? I don't mean stepping out when God hasn't given you a word and presumptuously presumptuously trying to go somewhere that he's not led you. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean this, the kind of risk you see in the Bible. Bible, faith, risk. It's the risk we face when following Jesus requires letting go of security blankets, and it always does, Um, leaving what is familiar, which happens all the time, just ask Abraham, and stepping into the unknown. When you take that step of faith, you don't necessarily know how it's all going to come together and and wind up and, and look in the end. There is an unknown element to it. And you're basically walking on the Word. Peter wasn't walking on the water. Peter was walking on the Word. One word, come, from Jesus, come. Lord, can I come out to you? Come. And when he was walking on that water, he wasn't walking on the water. He was walking on the Word, which caused him to walk on the water. Whenever you walk on the Word, you walk in a supernatural arena, a supernatural realm. Now last time we talked about the risk of vulnerability, which was illustrated by when Peter allowed Jesus into his boat, and that boat was an illustration and an extension of his life. That boat was Peter. It was what his life revolved around, and he let, first he let Jesus into his boat, and that's when the miracles began in his life. As long as Jesus was on the shore and wasn't in his boat, Peter wasn't seeing any miracles. He had fished all night and caught nothing. But when Jesus got into his boat and he allowed him there and did what Jesus said, the miracles began to flow. Now, let me ask you a question. Has that has that changed? In other words, has Jesus changed? No, because he's the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he's the same forever. So the same Jesus that challenged Peter and the disciples all the time to stretch their faith is the same Jesus that's in this room and in you and that saved you and me, and he's still challenging our faith. He never wants us to get to the place where we we were just sitting, soaking, and souring. He didn't call us to be pew warmers. He didn't call us to be bench warmers watching the game from the sidelines. He called all of us to be involved in what he's doing in the last days. And that's going to take courageous faith, risky faith. So today I want to talk about the risk of obedience. The risk of obedience, which is further illustrated with the story of Peter. And all four of these messages are going to be from this one story of Jesus getting into his boat. Because after Jesus got into the boat, he he commanded Jesus. Peter to do some things, and that's the way he, once he gets into your life, it doesn't stop there. You don't just have a ticket to go to heaven when you die, but Jesus begins working on you, fashioning you, molding you, shaping you, forming you into his image. So I don't look at what he told Peter to do after he was in his boat. When we look at the life of Simon Peter, you see over and over again, he took the risk of obedience. He risked stepping out in faith. In this example of the boat, what did he risk? He risked looking silly. Well, put it this way, he risked looking foolish. It was embarrassing to him because he had fished all night and caught nothing. And now when all of his compadres are on the shore folding up their nets, cleaning their nets, going home, going to the house, going to bed, going to sleep and saying, well, we got skunked last night. We didn't catch anything. Here's Peter. He's putting the sails up again and pulling the oars out again and going back out to the same place where he just failed. But this time it was by the word of the Lord. So he took the risk of looking foolish to his friends. And have you ever noticed that, like the Lord will say to you, I want you to witness to that person. What is the first thing that goes through your mind? But if I do, I might look silly. I might look foolish. I might you got to watch that. Peter obeyed, though he looked foolish. Then later, we all know the story. I've already mentioned it. Jesus says, I want you to step out of the boat and step into the water. There, he took the risk of sinking into the depths of the sea. It was a risky step, but he was safe in doing it because the Lord told him to do it. Come to me. And he stepped out and began to walk on the water. And later in the book of Acts, we see Peter having a vision. And in this vision, Jesus said to him, I want you to take the gospel to the the despised Gentile community. And he said, Peter, what I have cleansed, don't you call common. Don't you call, don't you look down on what I have cleansed. And, And so he went at the risk of being ostracized by his own community for having anything to do with the Gentiles. That's the world they lived in. So over and over again, he took a risk, and over and over again, as he took the risk of obedience, he saw the power of God break through. Revival was released and unleashed on the Gentiles when Peter obeyed God and went to Cornelius' Gentile house. You never obey the Lord, but you don't see the power of God released. Now, I want to know, is anybody in this place today want to see the power of God in 2016? You want to see the power of God in 2016? Seriously, I'm not up here to try to get you excited. I- I'm putting a question in front of you. See, I, I want to see the Lord of the breakthrough breakthrough. I want to see the Lord that poured out the Holy Spirit upon the early church. I want to see him do it again. I want a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit. I want to see the addicted saved. I want to see the hopeless filled with hope. I want to see people who have no chance of making it on their own be picked up by their bootstraps by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and changed. I want to see God move this year. And so I want to know, do you feel the same as I do? Well, that sounds okay. That's kind of convincing. I'm going to ask it again. Do you feel the same as I do? You want to see God move in your life? All right. I just want to know. Somebody just said, Harold, I didn't know that this church was like this. (laughs) Harold, you need it. You need to get excited about Jesus. Be done with lukewarmness. Be done with this plain vanilla Christianity that doesn't change anybody or impress anyone. I want to see God move where a, a deceived and dying culture cannot deny that it was the finger of God. Okay? So if we're going to do that, we're going to we're gonna have to be looking at risk. Risk. The risk of vulnerability and the risk of obedience. Every great personality of the Bible, you read about them in the Bible. Took a risk in obeying the Lord. Moses embraced the risk of obedience when he walked straight into the lion's den of Egypt and said to the most powerful man on the planet, Let my people go. You think that wasn't risky? You think he wasn't holding that staff when it was shaking a little bit? Let my people go. Gideon embraced the risk of obedience when he confronted an innumerable, uncountable army of Midianites with only 300 men. But he was walking on the word of the Lord and he wasn't standing on 300 men. Abraham embraced the risk of obedience when he laid his only son, Isaac, on that makeshift altar atop the mountain and would have taken his life if the angel hadn't stopped him. And when he was midair with that knife and his only begotten son right here, the angel stopped him and God said, you're my friend. He took the risk of obedience, and so did Noah. Noah certainly took the risk of obedience. Watch this, everybody. He gave 120 years off his life to build a boat where there was no water. He constructed this mammoth ark, telling everybody that two of every species was going to enter that ark. And that water was going to fall down out of the sky, which it had never done. The earth had been watered from a mist coming up from the ground before the flood. But he said, it's coming. And they mocked him, and they ridiculed him, and they made fun of him. And he was the brunt of every joke. He was not invited to social functions. He was ostracized. And he, and he, was, and he was, when the kids went off to school, Well, there's the crazy old man there building that thing where there's no water to float it in but the rain fell and the risk of obedience paid off because the whole world perished but him. His boat floated because he stepped out in the risk of obedience. Now, over and over again, you'll find real faith takes risk. There's a risk factor. But as long as it's based on the word of God, you're safe. Now, I want to point out three things involved with taking the risk of obedience to the Lord. Just three characteristics of it. Here's the first one. Uh, When it doesn't make sense, you must take the risk of obedience when it doesn't make sense to your natural mind because more times than not, it does not. Now, that's why the verse is there in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Why would it say that? Because to your own understanding... Many times what God is telling you to do doesn't make sense to your own carnal understanding. It doesn't make sense. Jesus commanded Peter, go back out there where you just fished all night long and didn't catch a thing. Do you think that made sense to Peter? It flew in the face of everything he'd ever learned about fishing, which was simply this. If they weren't biting all night long, they're not biting now. Peter had to deal with the protest of his own mind in order to take the risk of obedience. What's God telling you to do uh, today? And, and is it running counter to your own carnal, natural thinking? Many times the Word of the Lord does just that. We deal with this all the time, the Christian walk, all the time. This Bible itself, the red ink in the Bible, the things Jesus said, and that he told every believer to do, everything in here, much of what he said doesn't. Make sense to the carnal mind. For instance, the Lord said, I want you to bless those who are cursing you. That's not Texas thinking. Right? He said, take it further, I want you to do good to those who hate you. Wait a minute, why in the world would I do good to somebody who hates me? That's not what we human beings do, but it's what Christians do, and that's the word of the Lord. Though it doesn't make sense, you do it. And then he said, take it further, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. And that doesn't mean pray that they become a grease spot. It means pray for them. Well, that doesn't make sense to my natural mind. Does it make sense to your natural mind? No. But Jesus said, do it. And when we do it, we see God release. We see our own souls set free from bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and grudges because you can't be angry at somebody you're praying for. How about the command to forgive? Boy, that's the toughest thing he ever told us to do. He said, I have forgiven you trillions of dollars in sin debt. I want you to forgive people who have offended you, who have hurt you, who have betrayed you, who have stabbed you in the back. I want you to forgive them. But, Lord, you don't understand. That, that's not fair. Look at what they did to me. Forgive them. But that, that, that's totally out of place. Forgive them. But what if I forgive them? Isn't that letting them off the hook? No, it's putting them on his hook. Okay? But, but in the natural, it does not make sense to forgive, but that's what he said to do, and that's what the Word, the word of the Lord often, when you're going to step out in faith, he, he's telling you to do something that it's scriptural, but it goes against your carnal, natural thinking. And then the risk of obedience also involves humbling yourself. Almost always, obeying God re- requires humbling yourself. There's times when being obedient looks foolish to others and even to ourselves, and we we have to swallow our pride to obey God. It was absolutely certain of, of Peter here because all of his fishing compadres were watching him load the boat back up, put the sail back up, grab the oars again, and launch out into the deep when they had just gotten skunked all night long, catching nothing. I'm convinced he was embarrassed. I think his his buddies were snickering on the shore. And you'll often have people watch you when you're taking a step of faith who are not spiritual, who don't, don't have your dream and don't have your vision. And you go to step out, they'll snicker and make fun because they don't understand. They have no handle on what you're really doing in God. And you've got to swallow your pride to follow what God has told you to do. I've had to do it a hundred times. I've had to do it a hundred times. All of his business associates on the shore watching him go. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Well, they laughed for about 30 minutes. And then they saw him trying to pull a net in that was so full of fish, it was breaking. All the laughter stopped right then. And that's the way it is. You've got to step out when people are even making fun of you. And, 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 but listen, you will have the last laugh if you're stepping out on the word of the Lord. Most of the times that God has ever told me to step out and take the risk of obedience, it's required humbling myself. Almost invariably. I always had to put aside the fear of what other people might think or say, the fear of man, in order to do what Jesus was telling me to do. And you know what? There are also times when being obedient was just flat a wee bit scary. Sometimes when the Lord tells you to step out, it's scary. I'm going to tell you, sometimes you've got white knuckles like I have when I fly. No matter how much I pray, there, there is something about being in that long steel tube going up 30,000 feet in the air, and I can't get out. I can talk to myself. I can pray. I can bind. I can lose. I can fast. But I've got to give my whole soul to Jesus all over again every time I get into a jet, and I remind him of my calling when I'm up there. but I'm white-knuckled. And and really, just because you've got white knuckles doesn't mean you're doing something wrong when it comes to stepping out in faith because sometimes it's a little bit scary. When, when the Lord directed us to get this building, I'll give you an example. Here's this building. When he directed us to get it, oh, it was a mess. It was in a great location, but it was so depressingly torn up and a wreck. This was a warehouse. There were cars and tractors parked where you are right now. When I brought my elders up here, they all kind of looked once and turned away and said, Pastor, we can do better than this. When I brought Kathy, she cried and went home. <laughs> but I had a dream. I saw it. I saw it finished. Now, Now look what the Lord has done. Just look what the Lord has done. But that's not the way it was in the beginning. And I guarantee you, there were some people chuckling on the sidelines who aren't chuckling anymore. It was definitely a bit unnerving to sign on the dotted line and commit ourselves to what it would take to get this building where it needed to be. We had no guarantees. We had no backers. We had no co-signers. All we had was the word of the Lord, which is enough. But that's what we had, the word of the Lord plus nothing and we did it. God did it. There was a risk factor involved. And I'm going to give you a little personal testimony here. When God moved on me to first preach the Word, I was terrified, not just scared, not just white-knuckled, sick. You know why? I suffered from stage fright, big time. The very thought of standing up in front of 10 people or more and saying anything absolutely terrified me. Let me tell you what would happen to me. My heart would pound. My hands and legs would shake, turn into rubber. My hands would sweat. My mouth would dry up. My eye would twitch. And I just knew that everybody I was talking to saw the eye twitching. <laughs> it's true. And, and, and I would lose my appetite for days on end. I fasted not to be spiritual, but because I couldn't eat, knowing I was going to speak in front of people. And yet Jesus said, preach my word. Step out of the boat and preach my word. So, man... I did it. I did it. My legs like rubber, my my eyes twitching, my lips shaking, my mouth dry. I did it. And then one day I woke up and said, you know, I like this. And then it became a fire in my bones. And the word of the Lord has become a fire in my bones. Then the problem became Jesus having to pull the reins back on me because I wanted to go every day and preach. You're looking at somebody who overcame a phobia in order to do the word of God. Yeah, and so can you. Never let an insecurity, never let a doubt or an insecurity or a lack of self-confidence keep you from doing what God has told you to do because it's not you there doing it alone, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit it will get done. And any time you obey him, you're not alone. So we take the risk of obedience when it doesn't make sense, we take the risk of obedience when it's even a little bit scary and it's uh, for sure humbling, and, and then we take the risk of obedience when it requires faith in his word plus nothing. You have a word from God, period. That's it. Notice Peter's response to Jesus. He's already had the conflict in his mind. Lord, you don't understand. We were fished all night and didn't catch anything. Jesus knew that. We tell him things all the time, he already knows. Lord, I am really being tempted. Do you think he says, whoa, Gabriel, did you know that? (laughs) So he he says, Lord, we fished all night. Jesus said, launch out into the deep. Now here's where Peter's life changed. It changed and hinged and turned on one word, nevertheless. We fished all night and caught nothing, Lord. Nevertheless, and then he continued, at your word, At your word, I'm letting down the net. At your word, I'm stepping out. At your word, I'm going to go forward. At your word, I'm going to do this, that, or the other. At your word. I don't understand it, but at your word. I don't know how this is going to end up. Yet at your word. I don't know where I'm going to be a year from now, but nevertheless, Lord, at your word. And he went back out there, and Peter was never the same again. Church, if we're going to see the power of God this year, we're going to have to have a divine nevertheless come out of our lips. Lord, you don't understand. I'm not gifted. I'm not impressive. I don't know how to do ministry. I don't know how to do what you're telling me to do. You You need to continue from there and say, nevertheless, at your word, Lord, I'm going to do it. I'm going to let down the net in spite of my own thoughts. In spite of what others say, in spite of the risk, I will obey. When you think about it, the entire Christian life begins and ends with, nevertheless, at your word. His word tells us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. His word tells us that if we will call out on him, he will change us. And so we say, Lord, it doesn't make sense that I could just call out on you and be saved and my life be changed. That it's not a New Year's resolution, it's not rehabilitation, it's not turning over a new leaf, but it's transformation by turning to Christ who changes me by the power of His Spirit. And though that doesn't make sense to me, Lord, nevertheless, at Your Word, I'm going to do it. And how many of us are so glad we said nevertheless? Amen. Amen. Throughout... Life, his word comes to us over and over again. It's the same pattern, a variety of commands, exhortations, instructions, and counsel. And we have to say, nevertheless, at your word, Lord, I will do it. I will go there. Now, I want to share a quick Old Testament story with you that illustrates this, and then we're going to pray. This is one of my favorite stories. There was a man in the days of the prophet Elisha named Naaman. Naaman was a Syrian. And Naaman was the captain of the armies of Syria. Naaman seemed to have it all going on. He was powerful. He was rich. He was famous. He was charismatic. When he walked through the land of Syria, people bowed. He had it all going on. He had all kinds of people under his authority, and and he was real. Listen, if he lived in our day, Naaman would be on the cover of magazines, and he would be one of the top ten most admired people in America if Naaman were here today. But Naaman had a terrible, nasty secret. Naaman was a leper. Nobody knew that he had the leprosy at first, and one day he woke up, and he looked, and wherever it was on his body, believe me, when he saw it, his heart sank, and he said, oh, no, because this is the beginning of the end. I'll cover it up. I'll put on my clothes, I'll walk out, I'll put on a show. I'm going to get away with it as long as I can, but I've got a problem I can't fix. Do you know how many rich, powerful, famous people seem to have so much going on, but if you got into their inner life, there there is a leprosy, there is a habit, there is a sin, there is something that is chewing and eating their life away, and they cover it up for a while. They go out there and they put on a good show in front of the public, but it's growing. And they know good and well, eventually, it's not just going to be my inner circle that knows about it. It's going to be everybody. And we do the same thing with our sin. We say, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, I'm okay. But see, if it's hurting you, it's hurting others. And if it's affecting you, it's affecting others. And, And we get a sin, a habit. Something we know is wrong, and we try to cover it up. We, we, we put on our best clothes. We go out and smile in public, and we strut, and we act like everything's fine. But we know the secret, and our inner people know the secret. Those that live with us know it. Eventually, it's going to get out. And Naaman knew this. Now, Naaman went on a conquest, and in that conquest, he captured a little Jewish girl who he didn't, Realized at the time was his salvation. Because he brought this little Jewish girl home, and this little Jewish girl began to take care of Mrs. Naaman. And one day, the little Jewish girl said to Mrs. Naaman, once she found out the household secret Naaman's got leprosy, she said, Let me tell you about a man in Israel who can heal your husband. I'm sorry. When I read that, i got to think of the New Testament. i got to think of Jesus. Elisha was just a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. And this little Jewish girl is just like you and me ought to be. When we find out about the leprosy in people's homes, the sin that is destroying them, we ought to say to them, I know a man. I know a man. And, And his name is Jesus. And if you can just get Naaman to him, he's got the answer for the leprosy that is destroying his life. Naaman learned about this. The word got to him. Miss Naaman went to him and said, hey, here's what I've been told by this little Jewish girl. And Naaman at this point was desperate. The way you get desperate when there's something you can't fix and it's really starting to hurt you. She said to him, hey, there's a prophet. He said, I'm going to go see him. He went to the king. The king gave him permission. He goes to Elisha's house. Now, remember the three things you're going to deal with regarding the risk of obedience. One, when it doesn't make sense. Two, when it's humbling. And three, when you're going to have to step out on God's word plus nothing. So Naaman goes to Elisha's house. I love this. I love the reality and the honesty of the Bible because he goes to Elisha's house, and when he goes, he's already got a picture in his mind of how his healing is going to happen. He says in 2 Kings 5.11, he says, Indeed, I said to myself, that's why you've got to be careful what you say to yourself. Because you talk to you more than anybody else talks to you. He had talked to himself about the way it was going to all come down. And he said, "He said, I said to myself, he's going to surely come out to me. He didn't. He sent a servant. But Naaman thought, I'm so important, the man of God himself is going to come out. It didn't happen. He will come out to me. And then he said, and he's going to stand. And he's going to call on the name of the Lord. Notice the drama here. And he's going to wave his hand over the spot. Hama ha homma, abracadabra. Right? Dramatic, spectacular, fireworks. And that leprous spot is going to be healed. Well, no, because a lot of times the way you think God is going to do it, he doesn't do it that way at all. That's why you've got to be open and don't put him in a box. Because watch this. His own presumptions almost kept him from a miracle. This kind of dramatic hand-waving and crying out to God is what would have made sense to Naaman. This is what would have made sense. This is the way he thought it had to all come down. But Elisha told him to do something that made no sense at all. Here's what Elisha said through his servant. Go and immerse yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your skin will be restored, and you will be healed. Say what? 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 I need to be healed. I don't need to go for a bath. Do you see how illogical this was? How it made no sense at all? I need to be healed. What do you mean? Now, he's talking about the the idea of like if we baptize somebody seven times, we put him down seven times. Uh You're really baptized now, (laughs) right, name of the Father and the Son. That's what, go dip into the Jordan River seven times. But listen, because that didn't make sense, his mind protested, and he came within a hair's breadth of walking away and dying a leper. So check one, the word of the Lord made no sense to his natural mind. Then next we see that Naaman had a second issue with God's word to him. He didn't like the river. He didn't like God's answer. Elisha sent him to the Jordan. He said, I don't want to go to the Jordan. Why do I have to go to the Jordan? Why the Jordan? Why can't I go? And he named a couple of rivers that were in his own homeland that were far more attractive, far more scenic, far more acceptable. He said, why does it matter what river I wash in as long as I go to a river? Why does it matter what God I come to? Why does it matter what philosophy I lean on? Why does it matter what solution I turn to as long as God sees that I am sincere? But God always has a place. He always has a one way. He always has a one place. And that's why the Bible says there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. There is no other way of salvation. You can't pick this God, that God, this philosophy, that philosophy. You've got to go by the way he pointed He didn't think the Jordan was good enough for him. This was pride. It was the humbling factor. He wanted to go to a river of his own choosing that was more respectable, that people would have smiled on more because he knew there was going to be onlookers as he did this odd thing. The rivers he mentions, they they, when you look at uh, maps and find out, they were way more beautiful, way more pleasing to the senses. The Jordan was lowly and sort of on the other side of the tracks in Naaman's mind. So check two, the word of the Lord was humbling to Naaman. To embrace the risk of obedience, he had to humble himself. And I'm convinced this is why so many people won't go to Jesus I'm not going to go to that old rugged cross that old rugged cross where all those stupid people silly people ignorant people uneducated people go that that cross no no no. give me new age give me self-help send me to some respectable acceptable self-help guru I don't want to go by way of the cross why should I have to go to the cross why can't I go here or over there the place of my own choosing Because the cross is where he dealt with your sin. The cross is the only place where you can be saved. There is no other place. You can run off to other rivers, but they won't satisfy. The Bible says there is a river. There is a river. It says, and it makes the redeemed happy. And and that river is the Holy Spirit that is made available to us via the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the one you want to wash in, the Holy Spirit, the river river of living water. But what he was dealing with here is what people deal with all the time. I don't want that Jesus. I don't want that cross. I don't don't want to go that way. That's not, people aren't going to smile on that, or uh, that's going to look uncool. I'm not going there. And they walk away with their leprosy, and they die in their leprosy. And then last, check three. We see that Naaman finally said, okay, nevertheless. He had a nevertheless. Nevertheless, at your word. And this man, he's walking towards the Jordan. He says, it doesn't make any sense to me. This makes no sense whatsoever to my natural mind, but that's what he said do. And then he gets to the Jordan. He takes off his military armor. And this great man with an unfixable problem steps into the water. Everybody's there. He's got a large entourage of people, his own army, certainly members of his upper leadership in the army. There's all kinds of people watching as this man walks out. He's desperate. He knows this is it. If this doesn't do it, nothing's going to do it. I'm so desperate I'm willing to try anything. I'll go anywhere. I've got to get this leprosy off of me, he steps into the water. Do you feel that way today? i got to get this sin off of me. i got to get this habit off of me. I've got to get this vice off of me. It's eating me alive. Follow me to the cross. Because the Jordan is a picture of the cross. And he steps in. One dip, two dips. Do you know that every time he went down, his pride was further crucified? Four dips. Five. I think by five he's saying, if this doesn't heal me, that Elisha is dead. (laughs) Six. And then watch this, church. I believe it was so quiet you could have heard a pin drop on a shack carpet when he went down the seventh time. He goes down the seventh time, and he comes up. And listen to what the Bible tells us. It's so powerful. Here's what the Bible tells us. It says, according to the saying of the man of God, his flesh was restored like a baby's skin. Man. And not only did he get physically healed, but he got saved. He came out of there saying, whoa, I mean, you think that he said." So- do you think he stood there and said, well, I'm healed? I believe he went stark raving. You know how some people run around church and, and, do, and jump and scream and twirl? I think he had a benefit. You know, you can have a fear fit. You can have a worry fit. You can have an anxiety fit. But you can also have a benefit. And I believe he had a benefit. I believe he went. I believe he looked and said, "And here's what he said, the, the God of Elisha, he's real, he's real. And he became a preacher of the God of Elisha. So not only was his body healed, his soul was healed. And how did it happen? Lean not to your own understanding. He went, though it was against his natural mind, he humbled himself and got into the Jordan. And he stood on the word of the Lord plus nothing. And a miracle happened.